0: I'm Chris Reback. And I'm Tegan Goddard. You're listening to the free version of
1: Trial Balloon. Visit trialballoon.fm to get new episodes every week and more.
0: Tegan, you got any topics for us to talk about today? Because I was trying to figure out something, anything for our agenda, and I got nothing.
1: It was a slow week, Chris. You know, I mean, aside from uh, Donald Trump being indicted for the third or fourth time, depending upon what you're counting on, not much happened this week.
0: Yep. You know what? I heard something about there's that. Let's put that on the list. Why don't we talk about that today?
1: The good thing about it is he's being arrested for you. That's what he tells us.
0: That's what he tells us. Thank you.
1: It's my pleasure, Mr. President.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Here's what I do know. If folks want to send questions for the mailbag, and we've gotten a few more over the last couple of days, so keep them coming. You can contact Hagen via Political Wire. You can email me by simply replying to any day's newsletter. Now, let's get on with the business of indictment number three. Who knows, between the time of this recording and when it gets posted, there could be a fourth, but for purposes of this conversation, let's just focus on number three and something that you wrote earlier this week. We're headed for a one-issue election. You wrote that if you thought holding a presidential election during a global pandemic in 2020 was challenging, brace yourself for 2024. Unless something dramatic happens, next year's election will be a rematch between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Trump will likely be on trial or facing trial, or perhaps he'll already be convicted. As the campaign grinds on next summer, the outcome of the election may determine whether he spends the rest of his life in federal prison. That's a strong statement. How do you have an election like this? How do you hold a debate? How is anything else even discussed? It will only be about Trump's guilt or innocence. It's a formula for a miserable election, and whichever party loses will claim it's the end of democracy. So how close to the end of democracy are we?
1: That is the one issue of this election at this point, because we all suspected when Trump announced his campaign really quickly after the midterm elections down at Mar-a-Lago, didn't even wait for his family members to get there. He announced quickly. It's because he was worried that there were charges coming. He knows that he is running for president to head off, to delay, to do whatever he can to kind of fight these criminal charges against him. Which, by the way, Chris, there are now 78 criminal charges that he's fighting across three jurisdictions. And we're not even talking about civil suits and other things like that, that he's got. You know, common fraud trials that he's facing as well. None of that stuff we're talking about. We're just talking about the criminal stuff here. I mean, at the end of the day, that's why he's running. Very few... Candidates are willing to say that. Uh, Former Congressman Will Hurd said that at an event in Iowa last weekend, and he got booed off the stage. That was not something that Republican voters wanted to hear about, but that is what this election is going to be about. It's going to be about Donald Trump's guilt or innocence. It's going to be about whether he is allowed free or whether he's likely to go to prison. There's a chance, I guess, if you listen to some of these legal pundits, that this trial will be held before the election. But it seems that Donald Trump, if he's a master of anything, he's a master of working the courts to his advantage and delay, delay, delay.
0: There is just no way that this stuff gets handled before the election, in my opinion, exactly for the reason that you mentioned. He's going to appeal on every point. And I've got to say, that's how our system is designed. You know, one of the first things Jack Smith said was, a defendant is presumed innocent until found guilty. That is a bedrock principle of ours. I think that needs to be a bedrock principle regardless of who is arrested, and that is our system. That's a significant part of democracy, and yes, if this is an election about, let's call it the future of democracy, then that's an important point to consider. I wonder if this is so much an election about Trump's guilt or innocence as it is an election about which side one feels one is on. I don't think that people are thinking about guilt versus innocence. I mean, obviously, yes, I I agree with that. That's at the center of it. It is guilt or innocence, but it's also about what kind of country are we? And what kind of country will we be? And I know that that's tied up directly into this question of guilt or innocence. And in fact, maybe the question of guilt or innocence gets it all boiled down. That's at the core. But it is more and more feeling like two countries, two sets of people just talking past each other, not even speaking the same language, not even recognizing the same set of, you can't even call them facts anymore. You have facts on the one side and contrived information elsewhere. And there's just a sense of completely talking past each other. That's, I guess, what I'm really wanting to say. Guilt or innocence almost presumes that everyone is acknowledging an agreed upon set of circumstances. And we're not even at that state.
1: This was all telegraphed to us at the very early days of the Trump era when Kelly Ann Conway talked about alternative facts. She coined that term, and this was just a few days after Sean Spicer, the press secretary, looked at pictures of the number of people on the Washington Mall for the inauguration and claimed that it was packed when it was not. So this idea of alternative facts, this has been the philosophy of the Trump era. And so when Donald Trump says that he won the election, even though all the evidence says that he lost the election, many people believe him. You have a majority of Republican voters believing him. A poll came out today as we record this that 70 percent of Republican voters think Joe Biden is the illegitimate president because he lost this election. So if you can do that, then obviously you can say things about this indictment about really about any instance in politics, you can create an alternative set of facts, you push them through your various media channels, Fox News being the most prominent, and it's a different reality. And so you have people who are watching Fox News, as you and I have talked about a lot this week, and they're getting a completely different view of the world than the rest of us. And it's not one that's accurate. And it's one that goes back, you know, political wire readers will remember studies. There were several academic studies years ago that talked about Fox News and they did studies. And people who watch Fox News were less likely to know what was going on in the world than people who watch no news at all there were at least three studies that came to this conclusion. And that's extraordinary, but that's the world that we live in. It's hard to see how we have elections about that because we don't agree on even the basics. But let's remember, there is truth here. There is still truth. And so those of us who care about that and are going to make our voting choices based on truth, we do know what's happening in the world. It's just that there are many of our fellow citizens who choose to believe other things that may not be true.
0: So I heard a stat on that 70% of Republicans who feel that Biden did not win the election some incredibly large percentage of those Republican voters support Trump. And if you're a Republican who does not believe that Biden won the election, Trump only gets 20% of those Republicans. And the question that was raised, and I think it was a really good question, was why are more of the folks running against Trump, whether it's DeSantis or Scott or Nikki Haley, Vivek, any of the others? Let's hold Vivek aside because I have my own theories as to I'm not sure that he's running for president as much as a cabinet position with Trump. So he may have his reasons for just wanting to parrot what Trump says. But why are they continuing to advance that idea? We're not sure who won because, you know, that's not a way to get Republican votes. So that's one question. Second, and this is where my core question off of this is how concerned are you? How worried are you? Because your point, and yes, we've been talking about it quite a bit this week, you and me, about Fox. As I mentioned to you, I watched Hannity, the first 18 minutes of Hannity, the night of the Trump indictment. And let me tell you, I came away from those 18 minutes with a very, very clear understanding of what happened to Trump that day. I came away knowing exactly why he was indicted, what the reasons were behind it, and what the actions were that drove Jack Smith to take that action. You know what drove it all?
1: must have been the Biden crime family and their misuse of the Department of Justice, the weaponization of the Department of Justice. Did I get that right, Chris?
0: The Biden crime family and the weaponization of the Department of Justice. That is why Jack Smith did what he did. And by the way, it's all provable. It's all there. Every single time something has happened negative, To the Biden crime family, whether that's a hearing in Congress or new facts, Jack Smith has taken action, adding charges to Trump, indicting him a third time. Has taken action against Trump. And it is all for the purpose of knocking out Biden's primary opponent for the 2024 election. That's exactly what I learned on Fox News that night. So I have to assume it's true. They wouldn't have said it if it weren't true.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, this is the week also that we saw Devin Archer, who was uh, Hunter Biden's business partner, testify before the House Oversight Committee. And what was fascinating about that is the night after his testimony, James Comer, the chair of the Oversight Committee, and Jim Jordan, the chair of the Judiciary Committee, they came out, they reported what Devin Archer said in his testimony, which was behind closed doors. Well, a couple days later, the transcript of his testimony comes out, and it turns out, you'll be surprised by this, Chris. Turns out that Comer and Jordan told Fox News something completely opposite of what happened. It was actually that Devin Archer actually said that Joe Biden was not involved in any of Hunter Biden's business dealings. And yet that is not what Comer and Jordan told Fox News. So I'm sure they issued a correction, Chris because I'm sure you know, Fox News did that and they alerted their readers that, by the way, we got it all wrong here. But you know, it goes back to my point when I write this piece on you know, the one-issue election. How are you supposed to have an election in an environment like this? It becomes nearly impossible. And so I pointed out in that piece, you remember that crazy first debate between Joe Biden and Donald Trump in 2020 when Donald Trump was just yelling and screaming and it was the most embarrassing debate in the country's history, really. That may not be nearly as crazy as what we're about to see if these two men face off again. So it is a really tough time. This really just underlines the broader point about democracy being on the ballot. It's really not just about Donald Trump. It is whether or not we can actually have an election and actually do as the founders of this country intended by allowing voters to weigh in and choose their leaders. It's very unclear to me how we can do that in an environment like this. And how worried are you? I'm a little worried. Oh, I'm terribly worried because you know when you have an environment like this and you have people believing things that aren't true, then obviously yes, yeah, it's, it's crazy. I mean you have a situation in the Democratic primary where you've got Robert F. Kennedy Jr. who don't like to say this, but that man has serious problems. He spouts off conspiracy theories. he spouts off things that are just completely not true. His own family is disowning his statements. I mean, it is embarrassing. And yet he is being put on a platform as a legitimate presidential candidate by at least some people in the media and others in our political system. It's extraordinary because he, again, is just choosing what he wants to believe, whether it has any basis in reality or not. And I'm just not sure. I mean, I think Joe Biden's doing the right thing. He's mostly ignoring RFK Jr. at this point. He's got such a sufficient lead. That's what he can do. But what do you do when you've got a guy like Donald Trump running Mm -hmm. against you and he's essentially doing the same thing, spouting conspiracy theories and making up things and lying as he has for all these years? I mean, how do you run against a guy like that? Seriously, it's really tough, particularly when you also have media outlets who are you know, just as happy to amplify some of those lies.
0: In the old days, you could fact check it. Fact checking doesn't do so much anymore, I don't believe, because if you're not listening to the fact checking, or if you do happen to hear it and you know that the fact checking is wrong because the other network or social media channel or whatever that you're getting your information from tells you the exact opposite who knows which way is up? There was also some direction, and we know which way is up, or at least who is up, in the New York Times-Siena College poll that came out this week with some pretty strong headlines. Monday's story read, Trump crushing DeSantis and GOP rivals, Time siena poll fines. Former President Donald J. Trump is dominating his rivals for the Republican presidential nomination, leading his nearest challenger, DeSantis of Florida, by a landslide 37 percentage points nationally among the likely Republican primary electorate. Mr. Trump held decisive advantages across almost every demographic group and region and in every ideological wing of the party. As Republican voters waved away concerns about his escalating legal jeopardy. This was before this third indictment. He led by wide margins among men and women, younger and older voters, moderates and conservatives, those who went to college and those who didn't, and in cities, suburbs, and rural areas. Overall, Mr. Trump led Mr. DeSantis 54% to 17%. No other candidate topped 3% support in the poll. The other element that this story had was the quote of the year, put down your pencils, this competition is closed. The quote of the year came from a gentleman named David Green, who said in this story, quote, he might say mean things and make all the men cry because all the men are wearing your wife's underpants and you can't be a man anymore. David Green, 69, a retail manager in Somersworth, New Hampshire, said of Mr. Trump, you've got to be a little sissy and cry about everything but at the end of the day you want results. Donald Trump's my guy. He proved it on a national level. So Trump is crushing it and he has proved it on a national level. Is there anything to take away except to say time to move on to the national election?
1: Well yeah, I mean when it comes to the Republican party, I mean it's hard to see any path for anybody else. Particularly, you know, unless Mitt Romney wrote an op-ed last week where he I won't even say he called for because he was kind of hoping that Republicans would coalesce around one candidate who might be able to face off against Trump. But unless that happens, it's hard to see how anybody has a path to defeating him. And I don't
0: think that know, works. That was one of the things that came out of this Times poll, even when it was just Trump against DeSantis, and I don't know if they did it with others one-on-one as well, Trump still crushed. Even narrowing all the support down to just one opponent didn't seem to matter.
1: That's very true. There's another poll, uh, Reuters-Ipsos poll, which actually says that roughly half of Republicans say that they would not vote for Trump if he were convicted of a felony. Okay. So that's a big if, and just as we were talking about whether or not any of these trials wrap up before the election. Don't get too negative here, Chris. That's a slightly hopeful sign for the Republican Party that half of Republicans would not vote for Trump if he's convicted. Now, the other side of that, of course, is the other half would vote for Trump, even if he's convicted of a felony. So that's kind of extraordinary in and of itself. The bottom line is, particularly with these trials unlikely to conclude before the election, it does seem like Trump will be the nominee. And so then we're just set up for that election from hell that we discussed, you know, a few minutes ago.
0: Now, here was one thing. I know you were just trying to throw a little good news into the conversation, and uh, we appreciate that, you for that. That's
1: me. That's, that's why people read Political Wire, for the good news.
0: <laughs> that's what they call you, good news Goddard. So that was the Monday story, the headline I just gave you. The next day's story, Tuesday story, the headline was, Biden shores up Democratic support, but faces tight race against Trump. And the takeaway that everyone was talking about on that front was that Biden and Trump were tied at 43% apiece in a hypothetical rematch in 2024, according to the poll. Your comment to me, to paraphrase, was that's not bad news for Biden. Am it, I paraphrasing you correctly?
1: I think that's true. The reason I didn't really you know, jump on the train that, oh my goodness, the tide, Joe Biden is doomed, is for a couple of reasons. One is that general election polls this far out from the election are not very predictive at all. There's a lot of things going on. Most people are not focused on politics at all, unlike you and I. The second thing is that in that poll, it showed that they were Biden and Trump were deadlocked at 43% to 43%. So if that held and if that was the case, Donald Trump would likely be elected president, reelected president, because he would likely win the Electoral College if it's a tie. Most people think the Democrat needs a 3% or a 5% lead in the popular vote in order to win the electoral college because of this geographic sorting that we've seen around the country where voters choose to live. But that 43 to 43%, that leaves 14% of voters who currently say they don't want either man or don't know or will decide later. And of that 14%, I have to rely on a little common sense here. It's hard for me to see how that 14% swings toward Donald Trump, the more indictments and the more convictions possibly he faces. It's hard to see how Donald Trump is expanding his pool of voters beyond that 43%. Sure, he may do something or Biden may say something that would cause some of those voters to drift towards Trump. But if you don't know, or if you're that ambivalent at this point in choosing between the two biggest, most well-known presidential candidates we've really had in our lifetimes, because they've run against each other before. It's hard for me to see how anything that's happening to Donald Trump is growing his pie of support. I just don't see it. On top of all of that, when you think about those broader issues, you know, you remember it's the economy stupid, the famous line from the war room in the Clinton campaign in 1992. If it's the economy stupid, all the news that we've seen this week is that the economy is doing much better than expected. The Federal Reserve is now saying, yeah, we don't actually even see the possibility of a recession anymore, something that just six, seven months ago, most people predicted for the end of this year. And now the Fed is saying it's not even in their forecast anymore. The economy has remained much more resilient. There still are plenty of jobs. Unemployment is low. And while interest rates are higher and inflation is still above where people would like it, overall, the economy is doing quite well. So I just don't see a situation where Donald Trump has the upper hand right here. Now, as I also wrote in the piece, you know, when you think about Donald Trump's motivation to run for president, the odds of him winning this election are still significantly greater than they are of him defeating 78 criminal indictments. So expect him to run as hard as he possibly can and to do whatever he can because this is his way out of his legal mess. And he's still got a chance to be president. So I don't want to downplay the fact that he couldn't be elected president. He could draw that inside flesh like he did in 2016 and possibly win in the electoral college again. Or, as we've discussed, not to get morbid, that something could happen due to the health of President Biden that makes him a a less strong candidate in this election. But aside from that, I just can't see how Donald Trump has the upper hand here.
0: Is it still the economy, Stupid? One, for a lot of folks, the economy under Trump was believed to have been good. There were a lot of people who felt that until COVID hit, the economy was going well for them. I think that's how people felt. So is that a real differentiator? But two, more significantly, is it still the economy? I mean, we just spent the first half of this conversation talking about how it's about democracy and which side of democracy you're on or how you choose to define democracy, which channel you watch, what team you're on, Is that not potentially more important now than the economy? So is it the economy stupid or is it the team stupid?
1: I think that's really an excellent question and it is a good caveat. But if we look at history, if we look at the presidential elections since World War II, you'll find that incumbents almost always win election. And when they lose, it's because the economy has serious problems. So we can look back at the recession that Jimmy Carter had and allowed Reagan to kind of move in. It's usually something like that that causes an incumbent to lose. You know, you can look at George H.W. Bush losing to Bill Clinton in 1992 as well. Those are the situations that we look. But that's historical data and maybe something has changed. And we spent the first part of this conversation talking about what has changed. And what has changed is unlike back in 1992 when you and I were new friends at that time and we're watching the presidential election and you and I are watching the same newscasts. We're talking about the same facts because that's what people did. Now you've got websites, you've got social media, you've got alternative facts everywhere. So maybe the historical truth does not hold anymore. That's, that's a very good caveat. I'm still willing to bet that it is the economy stupid. I don't think that at the fundamentals of politics have changed. I think that when people go vote, they vote looking at their own well-being first. But maybe I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, then we are in for a wild ride. Part of
0: what has me also questioning that, and it's what you just said there at the end, voting with their own pocketbooks first. How many times have we seen people voting for, quote, cultural issues while related issues may have hurt them financially? You and I talk a lot about the disintermediation of everything and how technology has sat at the center of changing the dynamics of virtually every relationship between buyer, seller, voter, candidate, writer, audience, friends, certainly within families. I mean, you and I, I know both subscribe to the theory that we are living through right now, a complete reordering of just about everything. And it's part of what makes me ask the question and wonder, I mean, you just phrased it, you know, what's the viability of the historical record? And to what extent does past performance predict future outcome? It's likely something that we'll uh, continue to talk about even more. You have anything else on that topic? Otherwise, I want to ask you about one of my favorite stories of the week.
1: Let's talk about that, Chris, the uh, the election. We have plenty of weeks to talk about the election.
0: Well, this is also in the election zone, but it's just off of the role of technology, disintermediating everything. I just wanted to do a quick calendar check with you. August 23rd, if someone asked you for plans or go out, have dinner, I assume answer is no, right? You've got your calendar blocked August
1: 23rd. (laughs) Right, Eight o'clock, Republican presidential debate, Chris. I've got it on my calendar.
0: Okay, terrific. How about November 8th or 10th? You available?
1: Now, you may have stumped me on what those dates are about.
0: On either November 8th or November 10th, it appears Gavin Newsom and Ron DeSantis are going to meet with Sean Hannity and no studio audience, and it appears if you believe everyone involved, that they're going to have a red versus blue debate. You there's, a Lincoln, there,
1: there's a Lincoln-Douglas debate <laughs> right there, right? <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, yeah, it might not reach quite that
1: level. My question is, will Ron DeSantis still be a candidate for president on November 8th or 10th? That's a
0: great question. He will still, however, be governor of Florida. I think this is going to happen, and I can't wait. What's your point of view?
1: It's kind of shocking that Ron DeSantis would agree to do it because it just shows a desperation for him to get attention in this world that Donald Trump gets all attention. I mean, we used to talk about in the previous elections about the, you know, the debate stage was so large that some of the candidates were shunted off to the kids table and they had the little kids debate before the real debate. This is a situation now where it's like he's creating his own kids debate so that he can try to get some attention. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'll be watching. And now that you've given me the dates, I've got them on my calendar. But wow, that just does not say great things about his campaign. I can't imagine that his donors are excited about him challenging a guy who's not even running for president to a debate. And by the way, a guy who's very ambitious and well-spoken, and I'd probably give the odds to Gavin Newsom, even whatever baggage Gavin Newsom has, he could tear up Ron DeSantis, I think. I just don't think that's a fair fight. Well, Ron DeSantis is
0: just going to hope that Gavin Newsom doesn't air his dirty French laundry. But aside from that, there's (laughs) nothing else that Gavin has
1: has to worry about. All right. You win the podcast today, Chris. Thank you.
0: I'll take it. I think that the reason DeSantis appears desperate, as you're saying, and that this is the type of thing that, why would you do it? Because it makes you look so desperate. Dude's desperate. I just think that's where he is. And you're right. On the donors, donors can't be happy but from what I read on Political Wire, he's losing donors right and left already. I think the guy's got to throw some Hail Marys. I think it's a smart move for him because he is in such a state of desperation.
1: Do you know who it's a smarter move for?
0: Gavin Newsom?
1: I think it's Gavin Newsom. I think Gavin Newsom is really interesting. First of all, he clearly wants to be president. He can't run against an incumbent president who's done a pretty good job by most Democrats' points of view. And so he's getting name recognition out there. He's been picking this fight with DeSantis for literally months flies to Florida. He tries to lure businesses away from Florida to California. It's really kind of hilarious watching him do it. But he's picking a fight with a guy he is pretty confident that he can beat. But you know, everyone asks when they talk about Joe Biden's age, what happens if something happens to Joe Biden and he's not able to stand for election next year? And Gavin Newsom is doing everything he can to be that guy without actually campaigning for it. So I think it's a very smart move for Gavin Newsom.
0: I was going to ask you a fact check question earlier when you said Gavin Newsom is not running for president. I I, I was going to ask, isn't he?
1: Not officially. He doesn't have an exploratory committee, Chris. I so, see. No, he's not running for president at this point. But yeah, does he want to be president? I think he wants to be president.
0: I think he is his own exploratory committee, and uh, I think he's going to be exploring Ron DeSantis' soul. I won't ask you for plans on August 23rd, nor on November 8th, nor November 10th. Very quickly, actually, I was just about to end the conversation, but that just reminds me because on plans, you saw Oppenheimer this week. So now we can actually discuss it, but we can't give away any spoilers in case any listeners haven't seen it yet. Any headlines from Oppenheimer that you want to close with?
1: As we discussed, neither of us have been in movie theaters very much over the last four or five years. And so seeing a movie in a movie theater was fantastic. I'm so glad I didn't wait for it to hit a streaming service. I thought the story was just brilliant. The portrayal of Oppenheimer by Killian Murphy was fantastic. But I really thought that Robert Downey Jr. as Louis Strauss was incredible. Anyone who reads Political Wire, anyone who stays in touch with the news, reading your newsletter, I just think that this is the type of film that you're just going to love And the final hour of the film where I'll admit that if you're not a politico, if you're not interested in... Let's just say this. If you're not interested in watching C-SPAN as much as I do, you might not be interested in some of that (laughs) jockeying around... Around the Senate committee. But nonetheless, I found it fascinating. Love the film. I'm so glad I saw it.
0: I'm sure that that was Christopher Nolan's pitch to the studio. So you say, okay, so here's hour one, here's hour two, hour three. Now stay with me here. Think C SPAN only better.
1: It was was truly the best that C SPAN offers. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs)
0: That's a great pitch. So just to remind folks, you're not actually a Hollywood guy. You are you're, you're more a political guy. Although you you do like Hollywood. There's a lot of uh that stuff that you do like. Maybe you are a Hollywood
1: guy. Well, you might be the only person to really ask me my opinion of movies. So don't <laughs> I'm pretty confident that if you're a reader of Poloquire, you're going to like this movie. It's pretty good. It's a great yeah. merging of physics and politics and you know world affairs. It's pretty fantastic.
0: Yes, I agree. It was. I enjoyed it a great deal. And as I mentioned to you, there's so much material it made me want to read the book, which I have not read. And two, as I mentioned to you, it gave me even greater renewed, as if it could be even higher, admiration for Lin-Manuel Miranda and what he did with Hamilton to wrangle that much information the way he did with Hamilton is just remarkable because you know Christopher Nolan, I think did an outstanding job and it was three hours and there still were things that I would have liked to have understood more deeply, but I also understand that you know he made artistic editorial choices and emphasized C-span in the third hour as uh, any great Hollywood person would do
1: without giving away anything to the listeners who haven't seen it. My favorite part of the movie was the Oval Office scene with Oppenheimer and Harry Truman. I thought it was just perfect. Keep an eye out for that if you haven't seen it and definitely go see it.
0: Definitely go see it. And you and I are off to go watch C-SPAN. Talk to you later,
1: Tegan. Take care, Chris. Talk to you next week.